listen to the missions podcast, Gareth has an episode that will come out tomorrow that will share more about their journey as well. So be sure you listen to that um, tomorrow or this week as it comes out. Well, we start this morning something besides Luke. We're going to Jonah in the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Jonah, <clears throat> if you'll be turning to Jonah chapter 1, that's where we're going to so where we're going to be this morning, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. So if you find Nahum, back up two. If you find Micah, back up one. If you find Jonah, turn to chapter one. Uh, what do we know about this little four-chapter book of Jonah? If I were to give you a pop quiz test, I would venture to say that the vast majority of you would describe the story of a big fish and a bad prophet, right? We've all been to Sunday school for the most part. I want us to look at Jonah over these next few weeks from a less common perspective. That may not surprise you if you've been here a while that we'll look at it from another perspective than the norm. But I want us to take our focus off of the great fish. We want to debate on the great fish. Did, did somebody really get swallowed by a whale? Well, they did recently, if you saw that in the news. But as one old fundamental King James Version preacher used to say, not only do I believe that a whale swallowed Jonah and he stayed alive in it three days and three nights, but I think God could have carpeted that whale and air-conditioned it too if he wanted to. I'll go beyond that. Not only do I believe Jonah was swallowed by a whale, but I think if God would have wanted to, Jonah could have swallowed the whale the other way around. The Bible says it. Not only does the Bible say it, the Old Testament says it, but Jesus said it. So if you don't believe this, then we've got to throw Jesus out. We're not going to talk about the great fish of Jonah. We're going to take our focus off of the great fish, and we're going to put it on the great God, who is really, who is really the main character in this story. So let's walk through Jonah chapter 1 today. We're going to walk through it verse by verse, and then we're going to zoom in on what we learn about this great God. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Well, what do we know about Jonah? We know he's the son of Amittai. We also know that Jonah is called one of the sons of the prophets. Now, you may not know what that means. You may think his daddy was a prophet. But what the sons, who the sons of the prophets were, were really disciples of Elijah and Elisha. We read about these sons of the prophets in 2 Kings. We read about them in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. These sons of the prophets served Elijah. They served Elisha. They were exposed to their ministry. And like Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, Jonah and other prophets like him were the sons in the faith of men like Elijah and Elisha. There's an old Jewish tradition. There's an old Jewish legend that says that Jonah was actually the son of the widow at Zarephath. Do you remember the widow of Zarephath who built an upper room, a prophet's chamber for Elijah to come? Her son dies. She's angry. She's upset. Elijah lays down on this. He stretches himself out upon her son three times in praise, and his life returns to him, and he delivers this widow's son back to her alive. Legend says, Jewish legend says that that little boy was none other than Jonah. And that God resurrected him from the dead 
for future ministry. Now, we don't know that for sure. But whether it's true or not, Jonah was a prophet, and he came on the heels of men like Elijah and Elisha. And God speaks to him in verse number 2. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Here's Jonah, son of the prophet, minding his own business, and God speaks to him out of nowhere, and he says, I want you to get up, and I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, what's significant about Nineveh? Nineveh was one of the greatest cities in all of the ancient world. It was located about 600 miles northeast of Israel in what we know as today Iraq. If you were to go to modern-day Nineveh, you would go to a place that probably most of us have heard of over the last five to ten years, a place called Mosul. This city was the capital city of Assyria. Which might explain what happens in verse 3. Jonah, but Jonah, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now Tarshish is not northeast of Israel. Tarshish is, a, is, a matter of fact, the opposite direction from Nineveh. Likely, Tarshish is modern-day Spain. So God says, I want you to go 600 miles northeast, Jonah. Jonah packs his stuff, and he goes west as far as he can go. Now, why would Jonah do this? Why would a son of the prophet do this and not obey the voice, the clear voice of God? Here's a man who lives to speak what God tells him to speak, to do what God tells him to do. And God gives him a clear message, and Jonah not only disobeys, he doesn't just kick back in his recliner and procrastinate, he goes the other way. And what can move a son of the prophets, a man of God, a prophet of God, to do the exact opposite of what God told him to do? Well, we can't read Jonah's mind. We don't know what was in Jonah's heart. But we can come up with a pretty good idea from history and from the context. Nineveh was not just any old Gentile city. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Babylon. Assyria was wiping everybody out. They were expanding their empire. And when Assyria came to town, your army lost. Your military went down. And when your military went down, they would gouge eyes out. They would put hooks in jaws. They would lead people into captivity. This this isn't just a nation that comes in and conquers another nation and sets up residence there. This is a brutal regime that is conquering the world and their sights are now set on Israel. Israel is next. Assyria is coming for Israel. And Jonah knew that Assyria was coming for Israel. So let's just try to get inside Jonah's head here. If Jonah goes and preaches to Nineveh, what is going to happen? Nineveh could repent. And if Nineveh repents... God is likely going to forgive them. If you read on over into Jonah chapter 4, you find out that's what Jonah's problem was in the beginning. I knew it when you sent me here that, they were, that you were going to be merciful. 
So if Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches to Nineveh and Nineveh happens to repent, then God is going to be merciful to Nineveh and he's going to, he's going to re- withhold his judgment and therefore Assyria is going to remain strong and Assyria is going to conquer Israel. If Jonah doesn't preach to Nineveh, if he runs the other way, maybe Nineveh will continue in their sin. Maybe God will judge Nineveh. Maybe God will destroy Nineveh and at best wipe away Assyria or at worst at least slow them down in their conquest of the world. If Jonah goes to Nineveh and Nineveh is spared, he cannot put this on his resume. Or he will always be known of in Israel as the traitor prophet. God was asking him to sacrifice his reputation as a good citizen of Israel for the sake of the Ninevites of all people. So verse 3, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and he went down to Joppa, found a ship, which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah puts his country before God's kingdom. Jonah puts his role as a patriot before his role as a prophet. Jonah puts himself before his God, and he runs. First he goes down to Joppa, modern-day Jaffa, which is a port city not far from Tel Aviv. He found exactly what he wanted when he got there, and you know what he found? He found a ship going exactly where he wanted to go, which was Tarshish. He finds an open door. Now think about this. Here's Jonah. He says, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't think I heard that right. God surely wouldn't ask me to do something that crazy. I'm going to go down here to the port. And Lord, I pray that there's a ship there. And I pray that that ship will take me west to Tarshish. And he walks up on the port. And what does he find? He finds a ship. And he says, where are you going? He says, we're going to Tarshish. Thank you, Lord. And he buys himself a ticket and he gets on the ship. An open door. God has paved the way. We need to be careful, don't we? Because you're all going, that that don't sound right. But that's how we live, isn't it? Open doors and opportunities are not always signs from God. Sometimes they're tests. C.H. Spurgeon once described a friend he had at school who had a horrible temper. He would just throw a fit. And when he would get angry and he would throw a fit, he would always pick something up and throw it so everybody knew to be out of the way. It wasn't stomp, yell. It was stomp, yell, and throw something. And Spurgeon said this, What struck me forcibly was not that he got angry, nor that he threw something when he was angry, but that when he was angry, there was always something at hand to throw. Open doors are not always signs from God that you're going the right way. And I want you to write this down. 
Get out your little pencil. Are you 21st century millennials? You can type it into your phone. But I want you to write this down. Think about it now. Jonah has heard what? What did he get back in verse 2? He heard the word of the Lord, didn't he? He didn't like the word he got. So he goes the opposite way and everything is smooth sailing to get that ship, get the ticket, and go to where he wanted to go away from God. It was an open door. And some of us operate our lives the same way. We maybe read the scriptures and it rubs us the wrong way. So we set the scriptures down and we want to look for experiences and open doors. And we like those better. Or maybe we don't read the scriptures at all. And we just try to navigate life through open doors and smooth pathways. I want you to write this down. Do not be guided by providences when you are refusing to be guided by God's Word. Do not be guided by providences. That's open doors, closed doors. God seeming to work things out. Don't be guided by providences when you are refusing to be guided by God's Word. Psalm 119.105 says that your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Not my circumstances, not the open doors, not the closed doors, not the situ difficult situations, not the easy situations. No, what is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path? It is God's Word. Jonah got a word from God. He heard from God. And instead of going with the Word of God, he went with his circumstances, and God had provided him a ship, and he provided him a ship that was sailing to Tarshish, so he got on board. And he missed the boat. Verse 4, the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Jonah's trying to get to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord, and God said, man, I can't let him get over there to Tarshish where I'm not. I mean, Jonas found out, I don't live in Tarshish. I don't exist in Tarshish. I'm not present in Tarshish. He's going to get away from me. I better stop him. We'll get to that in a minute. But he hurled a great wind on the sea. God hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Everybody's crying to their God except for one guy, Jonah, had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. How is this possible? You know you're in a mess when you can fall sound asleep when you're running from God. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? This ship is about to be broken into pieces. We've offloaded the cargo. Your suitcase is floating, Jonah. We are, we are in a desperate situation. we got people up there calling on the sun god, the moon god, the rain god, the lightning god, Buddha, Confucius, everybody we can think of the name. We're calling on him, and you're down here asleep. Same exact question was asked of three guys. Several hundred years later, as a spiritual storm was raging, 
Jesus is sweating drops of blood. Jesus is in agony, and the disciples who should have been praying are sleeping. Jonah, who should have been obeying, was sleeping. How often do we sleep when we should be praying? How often do we sleep when we should be obeying? The captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on, guess who? Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Man, I just feel like he's got the bright light on him. They're just pounding him with questions. From what people are you? Verse 9, he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, Yahweh, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men became extremely frightened. Now notice here, they're already afraid. The ship's about to break apart. These are sailors. They're not people like us who get out on the water and all of a sudden something blow up and we don't know what to do with it. These men are sailors. This is how they make their living. This is what they do and they're afraid. You know, if you're on the plane, I was on a plane one time and I was over the Philippines flying and I mean, I was already reciting Revelation 4. Like, I'm fixing to see the Lord, okay? And there's this lady in front of me. She's going, Lord Jesus, help us! She's screaming. And I mean, the pilot never even says anything. He's like, we're flying at 30,000 feet. Everybody's panicking in the back. He's not worried about it. He does this all the time. Everybody else is clinging to their life jacket under the seat and calling out to Jesus and I'm praying and the pilot's just flying. These guys are used to turbulence, okay? But they're afraid. And they say, everybody better call on your God. Go down there and get that guy that's asleep and tell him to get up and call on whoever his God is. We are afraid. But now we get to verse 10. They say, who are you? And he says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh, the God who created the sea. He created the dry land. And then the Bible says they became extremely frightened. Now when a Hebrew writer wanted to really press something, Here's what he would do. He would take the verb and he would use that verb, a form of that verb, as the object of the verb. Now, those of you that are already bored with English and that little bit of sentence, here's what it would literally have said. The men feared a great fear. And when a Hebrew writer writes something like the men feared, there's your verb, a great fear. Fear, there's the object of the verb, use the same word. With a man feared a great fear, he's trying to push home something that these guys are panicking. This is serious. Verse 11, so they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Take me back to the port. Let me go to Nineveh and preach the good news to these people. I, I need to go back and I need to do what God said. That's like... Answer A for me, wouldn't it be for you? But Jonah's a patriot. Jonah's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Jonah is a man who's not going to betray his country. He's not going to be labeled a traitor. He doesn't want to risk Nineveh repenting and God being merciful. So what does Jonah say? He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. That seems quite drastic, doesn't it? But if Jonah gets thrown into the sea, Jonah gets to die. And death is better than seeing Nineveh repent. I want you to see how messed up this is. Because before we get to the end of the Jonah, I hope we all realize how messed up we can be too. 
Jonah would drown, the sailors would survive, maybe Nineveh would hear no warning and be destroyed and Israel would survive and everybody would live happily ever after. Look at what these sailors do in verse 13 though. It says, however, the men rowed desperately to return to land. They could have thrown him overboard then, but these pagans worked themselves into a frenzy trying to save a pouting prophet. They're rowing desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord. Do you notice there in your Bible, is that all capitals, L-O-R-D, the Lord? They called on not the moon God, sun God, lightning God, thunder God, whatever God they've been calling on. They called on Yahweh. And they said, we earnestly pray, O Yahweh, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Yahweh, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to who? To Yahweh, and they made vows. Jonah is in sin, running from God, and people just through his testimony, as bad as it was, are getting saved. And we leave Jonah sinking, hopeless, helpless into the sea. Apparently this guy can't swim. We'll find out in chapter 2, he's just sinking. Or maybe he could swim and he said, I don't care. Just let me die. He was sinking hopeless until the Lord sent salvation. No, that well was not judgment, people. We think, well, bad, bad Jonah got swallowed by a well. Bad, bad Jonah got swallowed by a well, but it wasn't the judgment that brought the well. It was salvation. Jonah about to sink to the bottom. It's interesting that Jonah mentions the, the, the mountains at the bottom of the sea. Nobody knew there were mountains at the bottom of the sea until well after Jonah had lived and died and been forgotten. Jonah's sinking down low, and he's going to drown, and by God's grace, a whale swallows him. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And that's how chapter 1 ends. And the, there is the main part of the story that most of us recognize, right? Jonah got swallowed by a whale. But if we focus on the great fish, we're going to lose sight of the great God. So what do we learn about God? Number one, we learn that God is omnipresent. I know that's a big word, just bear with me. God is omnipresent. In verse number three, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What's the matter with this guy? He thinks he's going to go to Spain and get away from God? So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He knows the Psalms. He's going to sing them in chapter 2 or pray them. He knows the Psalms. He knows that God cannot be fled away from. God is everywhere, and he showed up on that ship, and he showed up on that ocean, and he showed up at the bottom of that ocean, and he showed up with that well, and he showed up with a lot, and he's going to show up with a lot in this book because he's everywhere. That's what we mean when we say God is omnipresent. It means that God is everywhere, and it doesn't just mean that God is everywhere. Please tune in. Please stay with me. It doesn't just mean that God is everywhere, but it means that all of God is everywhere. 
Jeremiah chapter 23, 23 and 24. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Not part of me fills heaven, part of me fills the earth. But I fill heaven and earth. I am whole God filling whole heaven. And I am whole God filling whole earth. God is right here at First Baptist Church, Tullahoma, Tennessee. And God is in Kabul, Afghanistan. All of Him. Stephen Sharnock, Puritan writer, describes God as the soul of the world. He said, as the soul is in every part of the body to quicken it, so God is in every part of the world to support it. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, 7 through 10, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, Jonah, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Listen listen to this. Stephen Sharnock said this, and just let this sink home with you. If a man were to set in the highest heavens... He would not be nearer to the essence of God than if he were in the center of the earth. God is present everywhere. All of him. God is omnipresent. Number two, God is omnipotent. Verse number four, the Lord, Yahweh, hurled. He hurled a great wind on the sea. It's not like, oh, let me see if I can push the wind out. No, God hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. God is omnipotent. He's called almighty in the scriptures. That word omnipotent suggests that God possesses all power and all authority. He has all power And all authority. He is all powerful. Omnipotent. So the weak minded out there. Who have PhDs will say. So can God do anything. And then the Christians who may not really know their Bible well. Say yes my God can do anything. And then the professor says. Well can he make a rock too big. That he's so big he can't pick it up. Or if God can do anything. Why does he just put an end to evil right now? Why does he just wrap up Afghanistan right now and free all the Christians? Just save everybody. Can God do anything? Absolutely not. He can't do anything. He can't lie. Can God lie? That's something he can't do. Can God deny Himself? Can God be tempted with evil? Is God up there just having to resist all the evil in the world because He just might become a wicked God? Absolutely not. Can God cease to exist? Can God cease to be God? I'm just going to take the day off. I'm going on vacation. I'm going to let somebody else be God for a while. Can God do that? No. And get this. Here's something else God can't do. 
God cannot act in a way that is inconsistent with any of His attributes. But you know what God can do? He can hurl a great wind on a great sea and break up a great ship with a word, if He so wills. So in the catechism, we say, can God do all things? And the answer is, yes. He can do all His holy will. That's what it means to be omnipotent. God can do all His holy will, and the devil himself from hell can't stop him, he can't slow him down, he can't hinder him, he can't hurt him. The President of the United States, the worst dictator in the world, the biggest army in the world, nobody can stop God from doing what God wants to do when God wants to do it. And that's good news. That is good news. He is omnipotent. Number three, He's Creator. Verse 9, He said to them, Jonah said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He made this sea, this raging. He made the dry land that you all want to be on right now. God created all things in six days. The evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning were the third day. Six days God created all things with the word of His mouth. Say I'm lying. If I'm lying, you're saying Jesus is lying because that's exactly how He presented it. And if Jesus lied about that, we got problems, folks. Let's go binge on a Netflix reality TV show that's worthless because we got problems. God created. And listen, when God created, He didn't wind up creation like a clock that'll just wind down and when it finally winds down, then He'll come back into the picture. No, He wound it up and every tick and every tock of this creation clock along the way is dependent upon Him. Colossians 1.17, He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Jonah doesn't fear the sea. Throw me in there. He fears the one who made the sea. God is creator. And I want you to hear me right now. You, person out there who's listening to me, you have a creator. I know you kids go to school and they tell you you evolved from the ooh to the goo to the zoo to you and therefore you don't really have much value. And that's why people act like animals because that's what they've been told they are for 12 years of school and then for four years of college or more. You're just an animal. You just evolved. You're just like an ape. You're just a little further along. And they hear that and they hear that and then before long everybody starts acting like animals and then we want to be holier than thou and say, how dare people act the way they act? Well, you've educated them that way. And then they come to church And unfortunately, in some churches, in some Sunday school classes, that's not contradicted. Well, you know, God could have done it however God wanted to do it. Yes, He could have, and He tells us how He did it. You were created. And you were created on purpose. You were fearfully and you were wonderfully made by God on purpose, and you were created for a purpose. Figure out what that purpose is and go with it. Don't fall into this trap of we're just animals, we're just evolved, we're just like puppy dogs, and that's why people treat their puppy dogs better than their kids. Don't fall into that nonsense. God created you in His own image. And He created you 
fearfully and wonderfully and intentionally. Even if your parents say you were an accident or won't admit you were an accident, He made you intentionally and purposefully with a purpose. He's the Creator. Number four, I'm almost done. God is righteous and just. We're learning about God here. We've already, I mean, just in one chapter of Jonah, we've seen that God is omnipresent. We've seen that God is omnipotent. We've seen that God is creator God. Now we see that God is righteous and just in verse 14. And we learned this from the pagans. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. It's interesting that these pagans in this short time from calling on all their pagan gods to now realize that the God of the Bible, Yahweh God, the Creator God, Jonah's God is a righteous God. He's holy, He's sinless, and He is just. So God, please, don't punish us. This is your doings. When we meet these men, they're crying to their gods. When we leave them, they're offering a sacrifice to the Lord and they're making vows to serve Him. God, please don't judge us for what we are about to do. You are the one judging Jonah, not us. They realize God is righteous and just. Listen to what God's righteousness means. According to Wayne Grudem, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right. Now here's where we run into a problem. We have our little standards of what's right and wrong. And when God does something that doesn't match up to our standards of what we think is right, we say, well, God can't be righteous because he didn't give me my way. Do you realize how kindergarten that sounds, how preschool that sounds? We don't have the freedom to define right and wrong. We don't. Because none of us are perfectly righteous, so we can't see it clear. None of us are omnipresent. So we don't know everything, so we're not omniscient. We didn't make everything, we're not creator, we don't sustain everything. So our definitions of right and wrong aren't the standard. God's definitions of right and wrong are the standard. He's the one that's perfect. He's the one that's righteous. And what He does is right. He is the final standard of what is right. Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock, His work is perfect. For His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness and uprightness. God is right and He will do right. Perfect and just. Righteous and just. Genesis 18, 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. As a result of God's righteousness, it is necessary that He treat people according to what they deserve. So we all like to hear about a righteous and just God until we realize that that requires God to give people what they deserve. And we kind of forget what we deserve. Do I need to remind us of what we deserve? Every person in this room, under the sound of my voice, listening online, not listening online, not paying attention, breathing God's air for free today, deserves to go straight to hell. And we'll rise up and say, well, that's not fair for God to save some and not save everybody. No, if we go on with fairness, fair is all of us get to go to hell. 
And the first time we sin, God just kills us on the spot because the wages of sin is death. He would be perfectly just. He would be perfectly righteous. The first time we step out of line one little time to just strike us dead and send us straight to hell for all eternity, He would be perfectly righteous and just to do so, would He not? So this is not good news that God is righteous and just. This is kind of bad news like, oops, we're in trouble because God has to give us what we deserve. That's why these sailors are saying, God, please, I know you're righteous, I know you're just. Don't give us what we deserve for throwing this man overboard. God is righteous and just, and that is a fearful, fearful thing. This is not on the screen, but you may want to write it down and listen to Proverbs 17, 15. Listen to what Proverbs 17, 15 says. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So you know what that just said? It just took all of Oprah Winfrey, Joel Osteen theology that just kind of treats it like, well, God's just going to sweep all your bad stuff under the rug because he's so sweet and he's so loving and he's so good and he's so merciful. He'll never look any of that up. He's never going to look back. You just do you and it's all going to be good because God just, I mean, he ain't going to see it. That's the theology of America today. 21st century American theology. God's going to justify you wicked people. The Bible says that the one who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous, both are alike are an abomination. So is God an abomination? No, he's righteous and he's just. And that means we deserve death and we deserve hell. How on earth can we fix this problem? Here's how we fix this problem. God becomes a man the man Christ Jesus, and he lives a perfect, sinless, spotless, righteous life, the life God requires of me and of you. And then he goes to the cross, and on the cross, that innocent no longer is innocent, but he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He took our sin, he put it all on Jesus, and he punished our sin in Jesus on the cross. Jesus became sin. And God justly carried out the death sentence on Jesus because our sin had been imputed or put upon Him. And God justly overlooks our sin and our failures because He can take the perfect righteousness of Jesus and put it on us. That's how God does it. That's how God can take someone like us who deserves death, who deserves hell, and He can give us eternal life and He can forgive our sins not because he breaks his law, not because he breaks his justice, not because he breaks his righteousness, not because he becomes an abomination to himself, but because he makes the righteous sinful and judges that sin, and he makes the sinful righteousness because of the life of Jesus Christ. Lastly, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Look in verse number 7. Each man said to his mate, come let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and coincidentally, the lot just happened to thankfully fall on Jonah. We know better than that. Those men cast lots. They can cast them however they want. Behind their back, blindfolded, shake them, toss them, roll them, kick them. They, they're going to point to Jonah. Why? Because God is sovereign. And he's got a man on that boat that doesn't belong on that boat. And he's going to do what God tells him to do. Verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, 
And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. That fish was not just swimming along and, ooh, that looks like a good jig. Ooh, and there's Jonah. No, God sent the whale along the way to be in the right place at the right time to swallow Jonah. He's sovereign. The word sovereign means that God exercises his rule over all of his creation. Ephesians 1 and verse 11 says, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. God works or accomplishes or brings about all things, everything, according to his own will. No event in creation falls outside of God's sovereign providences. No event in creation falls outside of His sovereign control. From our perspective, casting lots, drawing straws, rolling dice, that's a very random event. The sailors cast their lots. But God, in His sovereignty, according to His will, intercepted that random and pointed them at Jonah, Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. All of our actions are under God's providential care. For in Him we live and move and have our being. He is in control. And I'm telling you, there are people who don't like the word sovereignty of God. And I just think something is not hitting on all eight cylinders in their minds. Because I would be an absolute basket case in the mental ward right now if I did not believe that God was absolutely in control. If he's not in control, who is? Biden? Me? The Taliban? The politicians? The deacons? Who's in charge? The the who? The CDC? Fauci? China? I mean, the list goes on and on about all the people we can pick to be in control and we can get all uptight and we can get all in a tizzy every time we turn on the news because what's going to happen next? You know what's going to happen next? Absolutely nothing that my God doesn't have His hand on. You know who's going to go into office? Next, whoever my sovereign God puts there. You know who's going to be your next youth pastor, whoever your next pastor is going to be? Whoever God puts there. You know how long COVID-19 is going to last? However long God allows it to last. You know what it's going to do to us? Nope, but God does. You know what the economy's going to do? Nope, but God does. You know what the Taliban's going to do? Nope, but God does. Do you know what the weather's going to do? Nope, and the weatherman don't either, but God does. And I don't know about you, but that helps me lay down at night on my pillow and sleep like a Jonah in the bottom of the boat. Because God is in control. And when all hell breaks loose and everything crumbles around me and everything crumbles around you and life is never the same, we have the same God. Now what do you want to talk about? A whale? Or a God who is everywhere and who can do all His holy will, who created us with purpose and sustains us, who is righteous and just and who is absolutely sovereign. 
What you want to talk about this morning? I want to talk about God. And that's what you need to hear about. Because that's the only place you're going to find rest for your soul. Do you have rest for your soul? If not, look to this great God. Look to this great God. And if you're going to look to this great God and see Him, the only way you can do that is through the person of Jesus Christ who lived the life God requires of you and died the death your sin deserves and was raised from the grave on Sunday mornings and is interceding at the right hand of the Father now and will return one day to get His own, hopefully sooner rather than later. Amen? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to this great God but through Him. Amen? I'm going to pray, and we're going to close. But before I do, I want to remind you, there's some offering plates in the back. You put your offering in the offering plates. There's also some big lanterns. Don't ask me, ask Brooke. Some big lanterns. If you have a gift or a card or something for the McNews, you put that in the lanterns. If you put something for the McNews in the offering plate, I'm going to take it. Okay? <laughs> If you put an offering in the lantern, I'm going to take that too. <laughs> so you put the McNew stuff in the lanterns and your offering in the offering plates. You got that? And if God has spoken to you and you don't have rest, don't leave here without grabbing me or Brett or Tom or someone you trust. We want to pray for you. We want to point you to Jesus. Amen? Let's stand. We'll pray and we'll close out our time together. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love. We thank you for the time that we've had this morning to hear from Brett and Gareth about what you're doing in their lives and in their families. And God, we, and what you're doing in the world with moving all of these folks around. God, you are in control of that. And we know that you, you are the one who move us so that we could seek after you. And I pray that that would be the case for all of these migrants and refugees and people who have lost their homeland. God, we pray that you would help them to raise the support they need and get to where they need to be. And God, we pray that you would help us as we study Jonah to know you more when we get to chapter 4 than we did when we got here this morning. And help us to rest in who you are. If there's a person here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you would convict them even now and grant them repentance, grant them faith, and give them the courage to talk to somebody they trust. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.